remind you, 007, that Blofeld's dead. Finished. The least we can expect from you now is a little plain, solid work. Welcome back to Minute 007 of the 007 Minute, where each and every other day we go over one minute of one of the greatest adventure films that uh, is in the 007 uh, library, the 1971 uh, feature film Diamonds Are Forever. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm host number two, Mark Cerulli of Illuminar.tv. And we are back again with uh, composer-arranger Man About Town, Tom Geyer, who uh, knows pretty much everything there is to know musically uh, and a lot of things filmatically about uh, how these things are put together. And Tom, welcome back. Thanks. Completely untrue, but thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> Tells well. So uh, we, we're still in the uh, in the title sequence. We're looking at uh, that uh, somebody's grandma. I'm, I'm sorry. No, oh, no, young, Jim. A, a beautiful woman. young British woman wearing a black choker with diamonds. That's all yes. she is. With a mouth that reminds me slightly of Barbara Streisand, but I don't know why. Hmm. Mm. Strangely compelling. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and we're we're looking at. <laughs> Mummy, uh, are you in the film? <laughs> <laughs> grandma. <Yeah. laughs> I'm sorry. The years are not kind. I just keep oh. seeing. I keep seeing this woman and thinking Helen Hayes. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> that was airport, Jim. That one's yeah, over. That was. That, we're all done I, with that. I one. lived that one. <laughs> yes. It's a year of my life I'll never get back. Oh man! But I want to hear about. I want to hear about Kareem someday. That's all I want to know <laughs> about. A, yeah, it was a great movie. Uh, so. Uh, we uh, right now we're looking at the title that says uh, Don Feld, who is also known as Don Feld. He was a uh, a big time designer, uh, nineteen thirty four to tw- two thousand seven. Uh, he it, not least of which he was known for all the uh, costumes used on Spaceballs, those gigantic uh, ping pong ball heads. <laughs> dark, <laughs> dark dark helmets is his yeah, creation. Dark huh? helmet is a Don Feld. That's amazing. Now, so you mean that he was a like a legit fashion designer in the real world as Donfeld? Then, yeah, Donfeld. He did a lot of mm. uh, television shows, and he also, you know, he had a line of clothing. He was like, the Yves Saint Laurent, uh, if you wanted, if you wanted a yeah. beach ball head. But interesting. Uh, he did like Pritzi's honor. He did uh, uh, most famously, he dressed uh, Tony Curtis all in white in uh, the Great Race. Oh my God, that's yep. one of my favorite movies. Wow, that was him. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so not. Uh, uh, <laughs> Push the button, Max. I would love to do that minute, minute. But uh, and, and just to just digress for a second, since you mentioned the Great Race, one of my eBay heartbreaks was uh, up pops a the scorebook, Henry Mancini's scorebook for uh, uh, the Great Race, and uh, oh, I, no. I bid a hundred bucks. I go, nobody's going to want that, and boom, somebody outbid me a hundred. I mean, that thing's oh. priceless. It went for 103. Oh, yeah, it yeah, did. It did. No kidding. I couldn't believe it. Oh, I mean, I don't read music or anything, but just stinks. to have it, because what an, what an epic score that was. So good. Yeah. So good. And, I mean, we, we were speaking in the last minute about composers that bring iconic things to the table. I mean, Mancini oh, is another one of those he's guys. He's a master. You just, you just a master. And to think, you know, John Williams learned from him from the piano chair, that always blows my mind that, you know, you yeah. got... You got Johnny T. Williams playing the piano on Peter Gunn, and so you can hear "Catch Me If You Can." Mm-hmm. You go back and you listen. You go, "There's, there's the roots," and it, and it wasn't roots that were found by ear training. It was roots found by living in it, you know. And it's the same that I hear when I hear John Barry on this stuff. You know, he 
was a jazz trumpet player, military guy, yeah. a ranger. That's the world he came out of, and you can you can hear the roots in what the guy I, does. It's I met him fantastic. very briefly. He was finally being. Uh, um, they were playing, I think, some of his music at Carnegie Hall, and my friend Lee Pfeiffer got us backstage, and I actually we went into his box and we we were speaking to him like I'm like holy sh. This is John Barry. Here he is. So I said, Ugh. I said, Mr. Barry, what what research did you do for You Only Live Twice? And he looked at me and he goes, well, maybe I went to a sushi restaurant. <laughs> and that was my moment with John Barry. But what a genius. There it is. What oh, a genius. man. I love it. I love it. I, I, have, a, I have a very tiny Henry Mancini story. I, when I was... Gosh, I was about eight years old, and my parents took me to a Henry Mancini concert at the Garden State Art Center, which is now known as the PNC Art Center in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And it's this big, open kind of a, an amphitheater. And uh, Henry Mancini was playing the piano, and he's playing all of his hits. You know, he was, he was, he was going on going on with a, um, a bunch of different songs. He's playing Pink Panther, and so all all on the piano. And while he was playing. Uh, this this bird, like either an, an owl or a hawk or something like that, flew into the open amphitheater and hmm. started flying around and chasing the spotlight. And the audience started laughing. And, I mean, it was just roaring watching this bird flying around inside this building. And Henry Mancini could not see what it was. And he oh, so the stopped. audience is freaking out, and it's like you can't figure out why. <laughs> yeah, because this oh. is just dear heart. I don't know what I'm playing here. So... Uh, <laughs> So he like stopped and he looked he looked out of the audience and he goes, What's so funny? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Because at the at the at the core, all I mean not that I'm comparing myself to Mancini and Barry, but we're all insecure musicians who grew up, you know, playing the piano in, in the family living room and we really don't progress much beyond that. So you're playing in the family living room and Aunt Cleo won't stop talking to Uncle Charles and you're like Am I so uncompelling that you can't listen for five minutes, you guys? So I can completely relate, you know, on a much grander scale. I get that. It's awesome. Uh, wow. What's he, so funny? Yeah, he, he he finally had somebody explain it to him, and then he laughed. But it was just, I can just imagine his just horror. He laughed, and then he said, well, that's enough for tonight, folks. And he walked <laughs> yeah, off the good, stage in Good a night. Snip. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy your popcorn. Thanks for coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you punters. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, man. Wow. All right. Um. Oh well. Well, anyway, so much. So much. It did. No, Henry Mancini did not do any Bond. Films. No, 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 none. No. <laughs> I mean, but Peter Gunn might as well have been. I mean, that was yeah, like, that was great. As, well, it's as so iconic. It's so funny. Yeah, you, you, it's Peter Gunn, it's James Bond, and it's Schifrin's Mission Impossible. Those three. That is the spy vocabulary for music in the universe. Period. It's it's unbelievable how those three things have found their way into. Anytime anybody has a gun and a fast car, you have to do one of three things, and it's those three guys, you know? As, uh, yeah, as, the, the, as, as we're sitting, I'll, I'll just... <laughs> That's all you need to do. Yeah. Where's Where's Jimmy Bond? He's coming. We we know he's around somewhere. Three freaking notes. I love it. So, uh, I, I you know, I, I have a confession to make. I didn't do a lot of... Uh... <laughs> research on the other titles that are in this particular minute except uh I, i'd like to talk a little bit further down in this in this uh, in this particular minute we're going to see the title that says uh, diamonds are forever is copyright 1971 by dan jack sa well i just wanted yeah. to point out uh the visual effects uh wally yes. Vevers, long time in the industry he worked on 2001 
He uh, mm. Guns of Navarone. I mean, it's it's okay. it's amazing when you when you dig a little deep the the amount of of movie history that all these guys contributed to. I mean, I mean the director Guy Hamilton. His first movie, he was an assistant director on uh, uh, the African Queen. Mm. I mean, <laughs> wow. unbelievable. So visual effects at this time, uh, what were they? Were they were they moving mats? I mean, I, I don't know my cinematic post history. So what would a guy be responsible for beyond like a main titles where there's you know obvious graphics integration and stuff? Yeah, well, we're, when later on we'll be seeing an exploding helicopter. So yes. what they'll do is they'll drop in an, a, a film explosion in a mat on top of the the, fly, the helicopter that's flying away. So that's that's the most typical one that you'll see. And they're doing um, that by like two screens of projection on top of each other, and then filming down through the two, or, or it's, well, uh, it, yeah, yeah. processes it, it, they were inventing at the time. Yeah, <laughs> it, well, they they'd been invent mat, mats had been around for a while, but they'll do a black mat on top of a uh, a, a clear mat, and then uh, that blocks out the area that they want the explosion to appear. Mm. And they'll run this through a several passes on an optical printer, and then uh, you'll finally get the the one pass where it has the uh, the hole where the explosion goes over the. Uh, the outline of a, of the helicopter. So you just shoot like 30 frames of that and there's the explosion. And that's, that's the whole, you know, it's mostly just sitting over an optical printer going, Oh, I hope the timing is right on that. <laughs> Amazing that, that, I mean, being inside the film business, you know, as, as, as uh, we've all been had experience, you start seeing the layers of jobs that go into getting something like this done. And, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I told the story on pirates of the, we're at the screening, and the, the you know they show JB Jones's heart beating in a box, and two guys from the balcony go woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you know you can just imagine that these guys are sitting isolated in their own little facilities, trying to do their thirty seconds, you know, fifty frames of, right. of glory or whatever. And then that's there forever. Their grandkids ever. Goes, hey, Grandpa did that. Yeah, yeah, my dad blew up the <laughs> helicopter and blah blah blah. It's awesome. It's um, unbelievable. Yeah, when we had uh, uh, Rocketeer, when we were doing Rocketeer, uh, we had Amy Young on, and she she blew up the Enterprise. So that's going to fame. Uh, what a claim to fame, though. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so it's and, you know it, it, when you're watching some of the stuff, there's it's amazing how many jobs have disappeared or if they've they've morphed into something else. I mean, the stuff that uh, Wally Vevers did for you know that took him months, mm-hmm. I could probably do on this computer in about an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, after, just, after Effects plugin pack one, you're done. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, and did you? Want it further up the screen, or did you want it over here? Or did you want it moving across the screen? You know, he had a he had a, every, everything locked down, and this is just, you know, you can scramble it to where. Well, I mean, it's the same with music. If you want to move everything over two and a half bars, you can bump it this way and that, and uh, shut the clarinet up and change it to an oboe. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, click, click. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, wow. oh, you want it in D? You want it in F? Okay, we you know, <laughs> just bring it up. Um, we don't need to be telling people this. Okay. No. <laughs> Any it's potential really filmmakers out there? It's, it's going to be very expensive, whatever. You, you, <laughs> you can choose version one or version two. And if yeah. version two is not good, you can always go back to version one. That's the only thing we need to tell these people. <laughs> uh, uh, one, one person we do have to uh, touch on in the titles is the Stunner Rangers is led by uh, Bob Simmons, mm-hmm. who uh, yeah. was the first. Uh, actually, when you're watching any of uh, the Bond history, if you're watching it in the, in the movie theater, uh, Bob Simmons was the first film James Bond. Um, in a rather unique way, he's the uh, he's the guy at the end of the barrel. Oh yeah. wow! Until okay. Thunderball, then Connery did it for Thunderball. Yeah. Did it for reals. Interesting. And then uh, Ted so Moore. To... 
the, yeah, uh, the cinematographer. I mean, he he shot Goldfinger from Russia with Love, Thunderball, and one of my other personal favorite uh, movies, Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I love this film. I love oh, that Oh, isn't film. that great? I mean, it's just something so magical about that film. The, 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 that's another one of those, you know, the, the, the magic of the movies. I've heard a bunch of interviews with, you know, guys like Elfman who would talk about sneaking into the matinee on Saturday and staying mm-hmm. all day, right? Yeah. That was so me, too. And, and to remember being transported the first time you see skeletons pop up and grab swords or the first time Indy drops down and sees the giant, you know, wolf in face as he's going into the snake chamber. It's just how magic is that, you guys, that that, that we can put you in a dark room, show you a picture and sound. And it, it's so transportive and so everything ceases to exist and you go on this journey. I love movies for that. It's so fun. Uh, plus Carolyn Monroe. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, there's Oh that my part good too. God, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And John Philip Law, who yeah. one of his previous credits was Barbarella. Barbarella with the wings. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he had the big Not many wings. people put that on their resume, but <laughs> no, oh my no, God, zero. I, I have one quick uh, Barbarella story to tell you. Uh, back when I was doing promos for HBO on 43rd Street, they had all the little uh, post houses where you would go record the announcer and everything. And yep. uh, I used to work with this, uh, the audio guy at one of them. I can't remember the name of the the company, but he said, yeah, I was a, I was a backup singer for the theme song on Barbarella. Wow. It's not, <laughs> not oh. And he said, he said, yeah, you know, we, we all went to the world premiere and we thought it was going to be great. And, and that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. But the, but the music on Barbarella was great. Yeah. yeah, no, it was really cool. I mean, you look at some of these and those opening what we titles. Consider to be, humana, humana, humana. No, but and, and just the cl- the cleverness of how they did the zero G thing. If 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 you know the if you, if, if you remember, I don't know if you can bring back the memory of that particular scene, <laughs> which, which by the way was a Maurice Bender one. Um, so what they did that was shot from above. I hope I'm not ruining this for a bit, but if, yeah, shot from above. Mm-hmm. And they just did a very clever way of doing zero G. And if you didn't know it's shot from above, once you see that it's shot from above, it's like, oh, now it all makes sense. But shot through plexiglass into a deep uh, a background. Um, it, it was a fantastic uh, floor effect. You didn't have to do a visual effect because it was right in the camera. Amazing. Uh, wow. Practical always wins, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's just one of those simple things that, you know, you you enjoy it more when John Hurt's chest is busting out rather than having some kind of a mat on top of it. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, wow. Um, I don't. So you you were saying a, a Dan Jack S A Dan- who Dan- holds the copyright on diamonds, right? That that was a broccoli. And, Mark would know more about. Yes, they're their wives. Saltman. Dana yeah. Dana Broccoli and Jacqueline Saltzman. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Little so nod was to the that spouses a there. You gotta love the women. That's that's Hans. Uh, I had heard a story that Hans registered part of, uh, I think it was Last Samurai to his uh, two retrievers, because <laughs> he was frustrated with the uh, the academy or something or other. I, there was there's a story about that. I, I always love it when the when you name the spouse or the pets or the children or whatever. Hmm. Uh, Dan Jack is the one that still makes. Uh, don't they make most of the money from the Bond properties? Aren't they like the they own the the 
the do they still own the uh, the intellectual property of the Bond movies? I uh, you know that's kind of legally stuff that I never really delved into, but well, I'm sure we'll have a guest who will know that. Um, yeah, that you know, I'll, I'll, I'll listen along. It'd be interesting Dan to see Jack who's still and making Eon. money from this. They, they, yeah, and we'll probably whenever we get to the uh, Casino Royale minute, I think we're going to have a lot of talk about <laughs> Dan Jack and and copyright ownership and who who owns what and mm. where. But uh, they, but they own, they only own the film part, as far as I know. I don't think they own the uh, like the, they don't they don't own the Fleming books and stuff. No, 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 they don't. They don't. Now, does the the Fleming the Fleming family still control all of yeah. that, as far as we know? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. No, they all. Jack owns the very important, uh, uh, very nice and short and expensive uh, domain 007.com. Ah, um, nice. <laughs> nowadays, that's a that's a good thing to own. Short, short. It uh, is. Short domains. Short URLs are always valuable. Yes. Um, so Panavision and Technicolor, I, I, you know, this is something that I'm completely ignorant of. You know, uh, so, so give me the – whoever knows more, give me the two-second version of what that means because I've seen it my whole life. Well, Technicolor was the, uh, the, the process, the movie color process, and they were, you know, they were like, you know, the marquee name back then for movie color. And so the, you would take... And Panavision was the widescreen uh, cameras. So those were lenses and... and so Panavision yeah. was hardware and Technicolor was a process or also hardware? Well, it was... Process. It, it was a process, but they used... They used uh, basically, the easiest to remember it is uh, Technicolor film is running through Panavision cameras. Gotcha. That's, that's probably the easiest way to understand it. They, uh, they were an early promoter of Technicolor, technicolor equipment uh, equipment for the Technicolor process, the three-print process, which uh, mm-hmm. we've gone over previously that it's, they used to shoot it on three black-and-white uh, uh, films and then combine them in color film so that you could have uh, you know, perfectly uh, tuned color. And still thinking and, in sort of an RGB kind of setup, or how was it yeah, done? Yeah, yeah, that... that's, that's pretty much it. It was a, it was a subtractive, you know, uh, uh, cyan, magenta, and yellow uh, set up so that you could adjust that and by keeping it in what it was done it was shot through filters so by keeping it on black and white it never faded so you can you can strike a print from gone with the wind off the original three-part uh black and white uh, uh prints from technicolor of gone with the wind today and the color would come in exactly the same as it was back in 1939 because it's coming off of a colorless print through a colored filter that i never knew that that's right. fast and yeah. were these two companies then in league with each other or communicating about developing they technology were, hand in hand or was it separate they were they were complementary separate entities for sure yeah, if you if you think of it like ibm and uh, cisco systems i mean it was a different okay. different part of the chain but they uh, they both uh, they both worked on on equi- you know, uh, Panavision worked on the equipment, and uh, Technicolor worked on more on the processing process. and 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 getting getting it together. And then they could they could share their um, their patents with each other. You know, using patented equipment, they could they could be complementary for each other. Well, thank you and, for the, uh, the history lesson. I apologize for anybody that that's backtracking for. I, no, that's no, cool. it's fine. It, it's I mean, it's important. There's a lot of you know, Panavision still around today. They still make Panaflex cameras. They're still you know, they're into digital too, mm-hmm. as well as Technicolors. And Technicolor is moved away from I, I, Technicolor doesn't still make film, do they, Mark? I don't think. No, they no, no. They're anymore. they're out of that that whole uh, that whole business. They shut that so, down a few years ago. The last so, the it, last lab that processed. Color film for Technicolor was uh, in Thailand. Just a little trivia. Just a little yeah. trivia. Wow. For and, you. and so those have become digital processes now? 
and they, then they're, yeah, they're owning the code more or less rather than owning yeah, the technical technicolor is more like i mean if you're familiar with like pantone they they kind of they set the standards so mm. you can be technicolor certified for your equipment and make sure that your blue comes out the same as everybody else's blue, blue and all gotcha. that kind of jazz. So gotcha. they, they are more of a – I think you can describe Technicolor nowadays as more of a uh, intellectual property management company. They own they own brands like uh, RCA and stuff like that. So, gotcha. Uh, I think I think a lot of companies have moved into that as, as the titles have changed. You know, I think Technicolor kind of got out ahead of what Kodak didn't. I, I think Technicolor could see the writing on the wall with digital technology, and then they moved ahead with uh, getting into the uh, – the digital landscape. Awesome. And so, uh, intri- intriguing stuff going on there. But, uh, you know, it's obviously in full full flower here back in the 70s. Um, That's awesome. We've got, an, we've got an MPA logo number of uh, 23067. I feel very, very old. That's <laughs> – <laughs> I, I, can, I can remember MPAA movies in the 20s, and now it's – I think it's up to 50,000 now. I'm not oh. sure what uh, – uh, the, the current MPA number is, but it's it's in the 50s. Somewhere. And, you know, at one point, the, um, the producer, Harry Saltzman, was a part owner of Technicolor. Well, I was going to really? wonder about that. It's, you know, the, the were these filmmakers incentivized to use this gear, or was the gear the only gear there was, or, you know? Uh, there were like, a lot of other color nowadays, choices, but Technicolor was, I think, far and away the, the top one. Okay. Yeah, it, just simply because it was so reproducible, it was, and, and you didn't have um, like Pathé Color, uh, Coda Color, Deluxe, the yeah Deluxe, um, Eastman there's, Color. There's, there's a yeah East, Eastman's part of the Kodak Kodak, Kodak family, yeah. And uh, you know, obviously competing, but Technicolor was so entrenched in the in the business. I mean, Technicolor had usually had offices on the studio lots. Uh, yep. they had, you know, like, and I, 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 they still have them, I think at Paramount. Have you ever worked at the, at the Technicolor facility at Paramount, Tom? I, know, I, I mean, I've been on the lot uh, many times. We were actually talking about it on the break a little bit. That's uh, headquarters for my company is just up the street on, on Melrose there. So, but mm-hmm. I've never been in the, in the Technicolor facility. I don't believe now. Oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing. They they mix a lot of films there, and well, we can talk uh, offline. But I can certainly get you in there if you want to check it out sometime. Yeah, it'd be fun, yeah, man, for sure. They, I think they mix. Didn't they mix some um, uh, movie uh, Guardians of the Galaxy? I think Technicolor did the in the in, did that. So you mean that the Technicolor owns the dub stage, or what? Uh, I'm 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 a little. It's a mixing stage that okay. just happens to be uh, one of their facilities. Cool. So it's uh, yeah, it's just amazing how I mean it's, <laughs> to me to me it's it's similar to the way uh, Coleco the you know the uh, active the, the the gaming company and the computer company they originally started out as the Connecticut Leather Company that's where the word Coleco comes from <laughs> the Connecticut Leather Company so they used to sell you know belts and wallet kits and then they went into computers so Technicolor the great, the great corporate pivot I love that yeah yeah so they're but they're they're still around I mean still going <laughs> yep yep um but uh, we've got. Gosh, so many of these people, uh, and of course, there's the uh, finally the title uh, designed by Maurice Binder. Mm-hmm. Uh, Binder has so many different, uh, so many different openings. It's it's kind of like him and maybe uh, uh, who did uh, the Hitchcock ones, like um, North by Northwest. Oh, oh, yeah, Saul yeah, Bass. Yeah, yes. Saul Bass. There we are. Saul Bass. Saul Bass. Yeah. Yes. I'll cut all that in that in between stuff where I couldn't remember. Just say Saul Bass. That, <laughs> that was him. <laughs> Well, and it, it, when I first started scoring trailers, this is how I sort of got into the industry. Uh, I'm going to date myself. One of the films uh, that we were referenced, we were doing a lot of horror and that kind of stuff early on, mm. uh, was uh, Seven. And so that's another 
uh, if you ever get a chance uh, to look at the main titles on that. Uh, you know, I'd known about main titles and obviously movies my whole life, but the thought that they'd actually brought somebody specific in to do an aesthetic at the beginning mm. of a film to set up the story they wanted to tell. I'd never thought about that before. And then you go back into history and you find out, yeah, the these guys come in to do these main title setups and they don't do anything else in the whole movie. Right. All they do it's is like these a whole separate like, little unit. And uh, that's what he concentrated on for months. That's what they did. Yeah, it's amazing. So Yes, and you were right, Jim. I'm looking at, uh, thanks to the magic of the internet, I'm looking up uh, Maurice Binder. And, uh, yeah, he worked on uh, Call Me Buana, The Seventh Dawn. Uh, bedazzled, Barbarella. <laughs> Barbarella. Yeah. If, uh, if there's a, I, I have to tell the uh, the listeners that uh, if if you watch, uh, if, if there's a great site out there called Art of the Title, mm. artofthetitle.com, and it's nothing but the title sequences of a lot of shows. So you can you can zoom in and look at all kinds of different, uh, uh, you know, things from the '60s and '70s, and just. It's just amazing how how many how many different flavors there are of titles. And it's interesting, you know, like um, one of my favorite ones recently was uh, not recently, but a series of unfortunate events. Did you guys see this? Yes, with the uh, with yeah with Jim Carrey doing the the Lemmy yes. Snicket books, and they, you know, there's a great Netflix version of it out now. I don't know if you guys have checked that out, but the the they did uh, end titles on that one and. They're a masterpiece. They're very similar to what uh, Richie had done on the end of the new Sherlock oh, okay. reboot. But it's that coming to life, ink and paint etching thing across, you know, and, and uh, the unfortunate events one is more, we've taken paper cutouts and animated them, but genius work. And, you know, in those cases, they're done against uh, the main theme of the score, right? So not a not a pop song or a song, but actual composer underscore, just such great work and so cool. And, and as a composer, you... You live for the moment where your music is, you know, nobody's talking and nothing's blowing up. It's just you and the visual. And so, you know, for so many years, that was kind of thought of as the overture, right? As you would go to a show and you would hear the main themes that you were going to have, you know, presented to you in this opening overture. And a lot of Elfman's uh, early superhero works will feature really cool extended openings where he's introducing a lot of the thematic material very few composers get to do that anymore and so you know we live for that we've seen the whole movie we've seen you know with your outtakes or whatever you've done over the first section of of title cards at the end and now everybody leaves and they're sweeping popcorn <laughs> and this is the first time that your work is going to be heard in the cinema with no competition so yeah. it's it's kind of a changed paradigm you know these guys got a lot of glory in that first three minutes that you just don't get no, anymore. but i mean I, I'm, I'm thinking of the way that it's moved to end titles as as credits that you're you're watching things i mean I, one of the ones i you know if you watch the uh the incredibles i think was one of the most uh startling ones of that with uh uh michael giacchino's uh you know the, the music that, that basically they do a synopsis of the entire movie and you're watching all these things happening or, yeah um uh, I think it's Alan Silvestri doing uh, Captain America: The First Avenger with the uh, World War II posters. Yep. You know, it's just no, it's such good stuff. And so, uh, to me, as a, as a composer coming in, we're looking at a project, going, you know, where where are the times when I can stay out of the way, and then where are the times when I can really, you know, let go with what we've worked so hard to produce. And so, it's very frustrating in the modern film because it's you know, music has become uh, uh, less and less. I don't want to say important, but a 
it's become much more of a post-production consideration, which means you're doing it at the very end with limited time and limited budget and everybody's going, we spent all our money already and we don't have this and we don't have that. And so to go back to a period of time where they were obviously spending so much time and so much care on these setups, you know, it, 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 it makes me wistful for the past in a certain way. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's, I mean, there were always hard deadlines in, in the industry, but it seemed to me that there was a little more time to get things done, you know, years and years ago. It was, I think there was, they you were know? making less, there were fewer people doing it. There were certainly f- seems fewer people in the food chain that had the ability to weigh in on what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, some of it, I think, was simply that. And it sounds so high-minded and BS, but it really is true. I think there was more consideration for the fact that it was an art form and not just commerce, you know. And it's gotten right, right, right. It's yeah. gotten so focused on margins and commerce. And if Warner Brothers has a bad quarter because their tentpole underperformed, you know, all of that stuff really weighs into what you're allowed to do by the time it comes around to making a movie. Yeah. And you know, the the other thing was that they understood that, it, like you were saying, it was it was more of a business with less people in it, and. The studios had more say in how to how to build these things. Like they even had title departments. There was specific title. Universal had universal title. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I always think of uh, if you remember the opening to the 1971 Andromeda Strain. That whole that that was that was built that was beautiful house by a bunch of guys in an office going. You know why don't we just have overlaid you know all those different colors with the with different scenes. You know mm. like like uh, it's almost like the captions in the middle of a book. Um, but it, it gets you into the mood for the whole thing in that um, – I forget who the, the jazz player was that composed the music for uh, uh, Andromeda Strain. But the music was so – you know, it's creepy and it was it was on top of it. And like and like you said, it was more of an art form that you could sit there and go, this is great art. Um, and I just like, – like I said, I don't think there's just not, not enough time and definitely not enough money in the budget to uh, to do some of these things nowadays. Well, and the fact that they would take a risk on a, you know, American jazz composer guy to do the soundtrack to a movie that was, you know, more famous for stuff like Davis and Monk and that kind of, you know, nowadays I've I've heard, I won't say who they were, but I've heard more than one studio exec literally say in a meeting, jazz will be the death of your movie. And so, you know, this this thought of you can't do anything experimental, you can't do anything non-commercial and we have to you know always make the safe choices and really pay attention to the screening comment cards it's so omnipresent in what we do today and i think you know maybe not maybe the guys making this stuff would say now we had the same pain in the butt suits yelling down our necks all the time i mean i don't know it just doesn't seem like it was maybe it's a romanticism of the past i'm not sure well i think that the bonds were so successful that that they were pretty much left alone just bring it in by this date and you know they always had a hard premiere date i think you know hey, yeah we have absolutely to, do you think we have to meet this Tom, date. do you think that there's less bespoke um music nowadays i mean i i do notice there's a lot of i think american graffiti kind of kicked that off but just buying music rather than uh than writing the music for a feature film do you think that's that's a, a big pressure uh i think one of the things that you see you know if you it, First of all, it's a choice. You know, if you look at a Scorsese film or you look at 2001 where they've chosen to use source music rather than to retain the services of composer, that can be a creative choice and it can certainly drive the flavor and the feel of a film. I mean, what would 2001 without Blue Danube be? It's such a bizarre choice and yet works so perfectly. And so there are times when buying music rather than creating music from whole cloth is a 
intentional choice to you know make the film do something specific but i think you know it's it's back to what i said before where it becomes a consideration in the ninth hour rather than something you know when i hear film composers talk about i went to the set and i talked to the director and i met an actor and i picked up dirt from the battleground in you know germany or whatever the thought that I would be retained on a project early enough that I could go to the set is is a ridiculous concept for me. I'm brought in, you know, two months before the hard release. I, look, Bruckheimer, the story I heard on Pirates, I think it was two, was he hired a fleet of private jets to t- actually take the prints to the movie theaters because he wanted another week in post. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but that is the story I heard that, that, you know, it's not done. We're waiting on shots from, you know, ILM or whoever it was. And he actually spent his own money to give himself more time to finish. Only a guy like Bruckheimer on a franchise as big as Pirates could pull something like that off, right? This, this would never happen. So the bespoke thing gets compromised by, number one, how expensive it is, number two, how long it takes, and number three how much flexibility or lack thereof it brings to their creative process in the ninth hour. I would say that's a, and then of course you're trying to break artists and, you know, do product placements to make money for the studio and for all of the ancillary things that are, you know, Toyota trucks and candy bars and all that crap now. So I think it's a combination of all of that, but I think really long answer. If you take the time to do something custom and you've worked with the filmmakers and you've taken the energy to share their vision, it's always going to be better. But when, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the song, I'm blanking out, you can you can snip this out too. When, uh, when Come Together kicks in in the middle and you have slow motion of all of your heroes walking up the street and boom, boom, it's, boy, that does something, you know, and you can't deny a film composer could try for months to capture something like that with a whole cloth creation and it, it, it wouldn't work the same. So, it, you know, sometimes it's choices and sometimes it's, you know, necessity of that, the situation. Uh, there's a, a classic uh, 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 rap song in um, Deadpool. X going to give it to you. Dude. And that, and, that and, works you know, so perfectly and they made fun of it in the film. Well, they did. Absolutely. And so that was driven, the story I heard, by the trailer campaign. They were, we want it funny, but it needs to be serious and it needs to hit hard, but it needs to be familiar. And they came across that track and they dropped it into, you know, Ryan Reynolds sitting with his feet hanging off the overpass, bouncing. And it was like, it's magic. You you couldn't have done that from scratch. It was, whoever first threw that into Avid and hit play was like... Okay, I just found right. gold, right? This right. <laughs> is no longer our temp yeah. track. Yeah. Sitting there at 2, two o'clock in the Somebody morning. Somebody get Ja Rule on the phone right now. We got to get this thing. And then, you know, then it's, will the record company go along with it? And will the artist sign off on it? And if they don't, who can we bring in to, you know, redo the bed track and then get some, it, 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 it turns into a whole thing. So in that case, you know, the record label took a look at it and mm-hmm. went, cha-ching, yes, this works now. Wow, wow. sales. Uh, wow. Wow. All of it. Well, all Tom, of it. Tom, we're going to have to get you back for the next movie because the next movie after this is, uh, I think it had a pop song in it. So we'll, we'll... I'm, I'm so sorry I'm being dinged on my thing here and I'm trying to turn no, it off. No, I apologize. Not at all. This has been great. Yeah, I know. This is. It was really, really fun. Well, I, I'd be happy to be back anytime well, you guys super. want. Super. Okay. Well, we'll see you here next week. And, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, until then, we'll, we will we will reach out because we've got a lot of things to talk about in this film, and a lot of people to talk to about yes. it. So, uh, uh, for folks who want to listen to uh, further episodes, please join us on the big site 007 minutecom You can also find us uh, iTunes, Google Play. You know all the drill. I don't have to go through this with you every day, but uh, it's, it's always good. Go check us out wherever you wherever you found this particular. Find episode. us on the dark web. We're there. Yeah. <laughs> We're there far down. <laughs> <laughs> wow but uh deep join deep, us here deep. for minute eight as we keep just slogging through the uh, the, the title we're getting up to the big names so we're, we'll be getting up we'll be getting up there soon so until next time uh we'll see you later on the 007 minute yeah. <laughs> there you go wow your check's in the mail thank you bart saxby yeah tell him he's fired